Happy New Year! Happy New Year! <laughs> so I over the weekend, um, I just like spent five hundred dollars on Indonesian food, and I ordered five hundred dollars. Yeah, from Pondok Dawo. <laughs> and because okay, so normally like, were you having a party or like all this food or just for yourself? <laughs> Like five hundred dollars. Remember no, okay. that night when just, we ordered awang for like a hundred dollar, and we still like left with so much food. Yeah, it was Remember? at your place, right? And there were like yeah. three or four people, right? Yeah, just the three of us. <laughs> well, okay. So the reason I ordered that much food is because, okay, like to be honest, it was on impulse because I suddenly found out I was actually just craving tape singkong. And um, daun papaya, uh, bunga papaya. Oh, saying gitu. N- no, it's like you know, you know the uh, daun. I don't know if it's like beautika, like the the kind that you find at beautika. Mm, yeah. Um, but I mm. used to get it from. I don't know. Actually, I used to. I I love it a lot. I used to eat it a lot in Jakarta. Um, and I was craving that, so I just posted. You know who is making that, and it's so hard because nobody sells down bunga papaya in the states, actually. And then someone messaged me, and then when she messaged me and said that she has frozen down bunga papaya that she brought from Indo, she also sent me a list. And I guess there's the secret menu that I never knew about because in in Pondogao, it's like people just post every weekend like that they're selling food, and then it's like, oh, if you want to order, like message me for this weekend, and it's like, um, you're supposed to message them in advance, like three days or whatever, and then um, and then she sent me a list of like all of these foods that I've been craving for such a long time, and I never knew they existed because nobody ever promoted. Nobody ever promoted any of these foods, and so I just I was like, okay, I'm just gonna order all of them, and then I ended up spending five hundred dollars. <laughs> Remember that day when you went to Philly and you like came back with like how many like martabak six, and then and like you finished it in like just two days. I was so stressed at the time. Oh my god! And then I remember Cynthia asked the same thing. She was like, wait, so are you bringing it back to New York for like? Well, at least it's good that you have like Indonesian Indonesian food, you know. Yeah, I mean, because I'm not on Facebook, so I never. The only reason I'm on Facebook is for that. The only reason I'm on Facebook (laughs) is for that reason. I don't do anything else. (laughs) But yeah, my restaurant, my my, I mean, like my Indonesian favorite restaurants in New York, it's just Awang for uh, ketoprak and tahu isi. And then, what's the name? The other ones that we used to go and have nasi bungkus. Uh, Sky? Oh, fuck. Sky Cafe. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah, just it. Like, yeah, just chew. Yeah. There's and no- I, I went, 
I went with my friends actually to uh, like a vegan restaurant in the city in Manhattan. And some of their food have this like labels, uh, like it's it says like they have like Indonesian dressing, and I don't it know what Indonesian restaurant or uh, no, it was uh, I mean like according to the the waitress, uh, the owner were uh, a Brazilian couple. So I was mm-hmm. like, I asked I asked the waitress like what what is it what what kind of Indonesian dressing, and when she told me, I was like. What did she say? I have no fucking idea what she was. I don't know. It was like so- something that I've never heard before. I and then I told her that, and I think she said like, "Oh, uh, it's a it's an Indonesian inspired dressing." So I was like, "Ah, so it's not an actual like Indonesian Indonesian sauce or something." Indonesian inspired dressing. So like they went to Indo. But like what kind of Indonesian are you like inspired <laughs> yeah. so like they, from? Like, you know, yeah. there's so many. So, th- I mean, I'm guessing yeah. they had a holiday, like a vacation in, I don't know, Bali or something. And then maybe they were inspired. And I didn't order anything with that sauce because I was like, fuck it. <laughs> you should have ordered no. just to see what's going to come out. <laughs> No, I ordered hummus with uh, with strawberry, mm-hmm. which is interesting. Mm-hmm. And speaking of Brazilian and Indonesian um, food, Juliet uh, has spent time both in Brazil and mm-hmm. in Indonesia. So let's introduce her. Yeah. Born and raised in Singapore, Juliet Yuming Lizare obtained her MSc in Anthropology and Development from the London School of Economics and a BA in Cultural Anthropology from Tufts University. She conducted anthropological field research among tsunami survivors in Aceh, Central American communities in Boston, the Barrio Chino in La Habana, Cuba, the indigenous communities in Brazil, and South American migrants in informal settlements of Buenos Aires. As a visual artist, she has received several international awards for her documentary and experimental films. Her work has screened at festivals in over 45 countries, including Etats Généraux du Film Documentaires in France, Anthology Film Archives in the U.S., and Cinesquema Novo in Brazil, among others. Juliet also works as a freelance writer and has published exclusive stories about Singapore's doomsday rappers, Furies, buskers, and sneakerheads, as well as on ghost hunting, sustainable urban farming, and the oldest Teochew opera troupe on the island. She recently curated the program Dialogues with the Unseen, short films from Southeast Asia, which features five films from artists from Indonesia, the Philippines, Singapore, Thailand, and Vietnam. Alexandra and I went to see these films ourselves at the Museum of Moving Image. And if you're wondering why the name, well, let's face and find out. In those terrible dreams, a loved person shows up with the part of his face quite erased. He shows me the photograph of one of his friends whom he has talked about, whom I have never seen. God, he pawing now. God, he pawing now. 
Ruth and I went to see the exhibition "Dialogues with the Unseen" that you curated at the Museum of Moving Image, which is just five blocks from here.、Um, so, we're curious what made you, or what made Museum of Moving Image, interested in programming "Dialogues with the Unseen" in particular. So yeah, it's just five blocks from my house as well, and、um, I've had the chance of working at the museum in the education department since 2019. And generally speaking, I was already in New York City since 2017, and I have you know instantly trying to get to know the Southeast Asian communities around New York City. And I my exploration was more through food and kind of food journalism. So I wrote about. Different、um, Southeast Asian restaurants here in New York City. This was before the pandemic, so you know, very sadly, a number of them have shuttered,、um, which is a huge loss. But so that was kind of my foray into getting to know the immigrant Southeast Asian communities here. And then I started to look at you know what kind of art and culture of Southeast Asia are represented here in New York City. And you know, there's a lot about Asia here in New York. There's a lot of cultural programming about Asia, but I would say not so much specifically about Southeast Asia. So that was like one idea that I had that kind of like instigated this whole,、um, I guess, curation project. And、um, well, I thought because I have you know this opportunity to work in Momi, what better way to propose something to them and see if they're interested? So luckily, you know, they were really really keen. And,、um, and so that's kind of how it happened. I think they also saw that it was a it was very interesting to bridge with Southeast Asia, which hasn't really been done as well、um, in terms of the moving image and、It's- more like contemporary moving image work in and practices in Southeast Asia. So they were very excited to have this program too. It's、yeah. interesting. It's interesting that you mentioned that it's never been done before. Would you say that there is、uh, like a growing interest in the audience for more broader and diverse knowledge?、Uh, knowledge about Southeast Asia. The- yep. Especially think- in the realms of moving image, do you think、uh, is it is an easy、um, format for people to enjoy Southeast Asian、uh, art? Yeah, I don't know. I can't speak for you know audiences and audiences' interest in it. I just can say that there, you know, in terms of the programming, I personally saw saw that that there was like some kind of a、uh, opportunity, like、um, to fill that gap. But I do think that you know because there are a lot of Southeast Asian communities here and、um, in New York City, so I do feel that you know judging from the response. Uh, to the exhibition dialogues with the unseen, too, it, with the unseen that also, you know, showed that there was an interest. So maybe that's kind of answering your question that there is, you know, an untapped interest in in these topics. Yes. So、uh, it sounds like your starting point was the Southeast Asian community in New York. 
but it seems that the filmmakers that you curated were Southeast Asians in Southeast Asia. And could you talk more about how you you approach the project and you conceptualize the project um, and um, your process of working with uh, these filmmakers? Yeah. So, okay, so I started conceptualizing this in the heart of the pandemic. So, you know, in isolation, I started to think a lot about interconnection um, and thinking about as well in terms of Southeast Asia, whether there's any threads that kind of connect Southeast Asian cultures that are so varied and diverse in terms of histories, culture, language, tradition, like political context, you know, economic uh, circumstances. It's just so, so varied, right? But I started to think deeply about these connecting threads um, and through this lens of, you know, interconnection um, in my moment of isolation that, I mean, that we were all experiencing, you know, and we still are. So this idea of like relationality and interconnectedness, which I think is some, is a connecting thread that links a lot of cultures um, in Southeast Asia. This, and in particular, when I say that, you know, interconnectedness, I'm thinking between, and it's the idea of unseen again, which is like living, non-living between human, non-human. So all these films that I, are selected, um, they kind of reveal that interconnection in different ways and how that manifests and how different artists deal with that. So that's the aspect of dialogue as well. So it's not just like thematically about the unseen, but it's like how do we connect with that unseen or something that is, you know, radically other. And I think it also came from the idea that I wanted to you know, it was a, it's been like the last few years of extreme like social upheaval, um, mm-hmm. all over the world. And yeah. so I felt that, you know, how could we maybe reach out across the void of difference and, you know, maybe at a personal level, right? Try right. and understand or be more empathetic of otherness. Um, and I felt that this idea of interconnectedness and relationality, it brings about this openness, you know, to like different beings and different ways of being in the world, you know, different ways of understanding the world. And so that's, I guess, my <laughs> like deep down the hope um, and yeah, the motivating philosophy behind this, this whole curation and this theme. Yeah, and then you also asked about how I got to know the artists. So some of them, I knew them from from years back. I had seen their work, uh, you know, when I was in Singapore. Even some I just knew because um, their work had screened internationally. Uh, I got to know them when I was living in Brazil, studying filmmaking there. So, yeah, these are artists that I kind of already had in mind. And... The process was also dictated in part, in no small part, by the location, um, the specific space in the museum that this was designed for, which is the visual um, screening amphitheater. And 
So that's a very particular space, and it's more of a white cube than a black box. So what yeah. kind of works could Where, work there? Yeah, I would be curious to know like what you thought. Well, yeah. I was wondering like what made you choose that space because at least when Ruth and I went there, I think like a lot of people was because it was an open space, people passed by back and forth. And some people were not sure maybe if that was an official exhibit or if it was, uh, I, yeah, I, I think like that was my observation that, that there were some level of unsuredness. Is that a word? <laughs> um, from people because. Which is great. Like, um, I think that that part, it's kind of what we do too. And at Sugar Nutmeg, um, some people are like, Oh, are you guys like a bakery or a restaurant? Like, do you guys uh, talk about recipes? And it's this kind of feeling that we like playing with. Um, but we're wondering from your, from your perspective, when you were putting it together, what made you choose that, that part of the museum? So that was the space that was um, decided together with the with the rest of the team under curation at the museum. So that's like an internal decision, um, and that's the space I had to work with. So, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, there are its constraints, but I think that I wouldn't see it as a negative. I would see it as a positive thing because it's you know with the admission to the museum, you get to see that, and it's mm -hmm. it's basically on a loop since mm -hmm. April last year until February this year. So mm -hmm. the numbers of people that are going to view it, mm -hmm. even if they don't stay for the whole, you know, six films is mm -hmm. way more than if it was like a one-off screening in a black mm -hmm. box. Right. Yeah. Right. So yeah. I really think, I, I think this kind of democratization of like the space of exhibitions is good and people can be free to just drop in and out. If they're, um, True. you know, if whenever they feel like it, basically. So if they feel like they want to sit there and reflect, um, you know, they can. And if they just want to keep moving, then they can as well. And I, and I like that. I think people should be free to, to decide their interaction. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. you, you mentioned that you studied film in Brazil. Um, what made you decide to pursue that in Brazil specifically? Well, so I was working in Argentina. So I studied anthropology. Um, and then I studied anthropology and development for my master's. So I've been working, I had been working in humanitarian field and in international development for a while. And uh, that was my first job outside of my master, right after my master's was in Argentina for the IOM, the International Organization for Migration. And it was like quite a, not such a great experience, I guess, for, for me as a really, um, I had an idealistic notion of uh, social change and international development. And mm -hmm. that wasn't really <laughs> the best experience. Um, although, you know, it might have just been, that one personal experience, like I'm not saying that international development as a whole is something that is not a good thing because I, I do believe it is. But um, I just basically quit my job. Okay, well, this is really poor, poorly explained, but there's like a lot of personal reasons as well. 
Uh, and I was but just also really... we've, we, I was going to say, like, we've also talked yeah. to a lot of people who work at these aid agencies and things like that. And it's, um, I think it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty uh, common knowledge everywhere that, uh, you know, this like aid agencies and development organizations and things like that have more pitfalls than they do um, building up stuff. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. That's like I stray away from like general statements like that. But I think that, you know, what makes me learn, what made me want to learn anthropology and development is because it was kind of like a, you know, two headed <laughs> hydra kind of uh, studies because a development is all about, you know, yay, we're going to change the world from, you know, change communities from the outside, come in, change them, make them, make things better. Um, and then anthropology was all about evaluating and being like, okay, what are you doing in these communities, in these countries, like criticizing and contributing to development as well in critical ways. So not just, you know, criticizing and then like, like you suck, like let's get out and not do this, but just criticizing in ways that are constructive and also, you know, making the development programs uh, more tailored to local customs, local traditions and, and cultures and making it more sustainable in that way. So, yeah, I do think there are a lot of pitfalls for sure, but I wouldn't be um, saying that, you know, they definitely do more harm than good, like all the time. I think it's really on a case by case basis. So anyway, so, you know, I was kind of disenchanted with the work that I was doing um, in Argentina. And at the time I was kind of doing, uh, I was working in with the repatriation, voluntary repatriation program, which is basically for people who, Brazilian, it was specific to Brazil as well. It was for Brazilian migrants who had gone to Europe and they had to return um, because they were in detention centers in Europe for being mm -hmm. uh, without papers and... So there's a whole program with governments in Europe to repatriate them and they call it voluntary, but it's not really voluntary. And then mm -hmm. they they give them a little stipend to start a business. So the idea being that you start a small business and therefore you can sustain yourself back in your home country, in this case, Brazil. So and then I would have to come in and call them and be like, Oi, so Georges, to the bank. Like, how are you doing? Like, how did you receive your money? Can you send me your receipts of what you purchased? Like, oh, you want to start a popcorn stand? Okay, good. Like, send me the receipt for the, you know. And uh, sometimes I would call like one week, and then the next week I would call again and be like, oh, so Georges, <laughs> like he went back. You know, he went back to Europe, and I'm like, oh, okay. Like, and basically, it was not much like sustainability was very hard to monitor and evaluate from a whole other different country i mean you know hundreds of miles away it, it's just not it doesn't make any sense you know so what's the kinds of uh experiences that i had that it was a little disent um disenchanting and then personally i also didn't feel like i wanted to keep living in buenos aires i had a very like, I've always been so passionate about Latin America. I've always, you know, learned Spanish for many, many years. It's really my passion. And, and I managed to uh, study junior year abroad when I was doing my bachelor's in the U.S. in Cuba, university 
uh, of Havana. And since then, I've been really just like obsessed with getting back to living in Latin America. So me too. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, let's go. I know. It's like my visa, my current visa is ending in about like 14 months and I'm already thinking about going back and I'm like, yeah, finally I get to, I get a chance to tell myself I can (laughs) go back. Um, But anyway. Go back where? Well, before I was um, in Lima and Quito, but now I'm thinking, yeah, I'm thinking about, uh, I don't know, maybe somewhere um, more like in the central um up north yeah amazing yeah so i mean so you understand you know it's like there's an idea i guess our first experience of like magnetic it's sort of yeah it sort of like marks you and then you kind of think that you know in a i had this very you know close-minded view of like everything is like cuba in latin america you know i had this this extremely narrow vision and then when I go to Buenos Aires and I'm like, oh, my God, this is very, very European. And mm. <laughs> that was not at all what I expected. I mean, so most, when of, I went most to- of the people are like Italian and um, Buenos Aires has a lot of Ita- yeah, Italian and German descent people. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. So there are a lot of like uh, Western European uh, and Southern European uh, ascendants there. Yeah. For sure. And, you know, the whole indigenous population has basically been almost wiped out, you know, mm-hmm. in Argentina. So the kind of autochthonous culture is not there, at least in Buenos Aires. Like you have to go further and you're mm-hmm. like Salta, uh, Jujuy to find that or, you know, further south as well. But in Buenos Aires, yeah, there's always this kind of um, notion that they're almost closer to Europe. Then in Latin America, when, you know, they're right there in Latin America. So I just found that very, very interesting. And, um, yeah, personally, I just didn't see myself living there for so long. Uh, so I basically went on holiday, just treat myself to Carnaval in Rio. So I went for <laughs> Carnaval and I was like, oh, my God, I love Rio. Like, I just fell in love with the tropical vibe of Rio and I was like this is strangely reminded me of Singapore which you know beyond the initial like tropical you think Rio's and like you went during (laughs) Carnaval and you think it reminds you of Singapore which is very let me get to that so basically it was like so it was not the Carnaval aspect because that's like you couldn't be get further than Singapore but but it was just the fact that people very informal and it was like the tropicalness the kind of luminosity and like, yeah, I just, that initial very superficial aspect reminded me of Singapore and I felt like home. I don't know. I can't explain it. I just felt home in Rio. Mm-hmm. And so that was enough to push me and I'm very impulsive, less, <laughs> less impulsive now, but at that time I was like super impulsive. So I was like, okay, that's it. I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to move there and like just try and survive like however I <laughs> I can. So I went there, I knew nobody, I just did like some couch surfing. So I had some couch surfing friends and that was like my entry into like the social scene. Um, and I started teaching English and French as a tutor and that's how I was able to, to make ends meet there. That's and, amazing. Um, 
Yeah, and Rio is something is a place where you know they're very warm and open, so you can yeah. instantly be invited to everything, and you from there just you know meet so many people, so you never really feel like you're all alone, you know. Yeah, Sao um, Paulo too, I think. So I'm super curious about um, your time in Havana and the like what you did there. Yeah, so. That was a that was for a study abroad. Like my junior year, I spent one semester in the Universidad de La Habana, and I was studying anthropology and mainly anthropology, but also political economy and like history. And it was a it was a really interesting time. So you know that was in 2004. So Cuba now is com- like and Havana is now completely different since uh, Fidel died. And they've really opened up now. So I would be curious to see what it's like now. But at that time, you know, we were also we were the last American program, university program before I think Bush canceled it. Um, and it was it was a program which was just like one direction, meaning the U.S. students would go. No Cuban students will go to to the U.S. When um, did Bush cancel it? it? Because um, I think right after, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, I have to check. Because I know, that. I know from my school, um, I had close, close college friends who went in like 2009 or 2010, 2010, um, and it was like a one way thing. Um, yeah. I think that was Obama era already, actually. But anyway, um, so what? Yeah. Like, did you did you have any specific research or findings? from your time studying anthropology there? Yeah, so I studied um, in two different areas. So one was like kind of my personal study, which was like based on research, bibliographic, and then fieldwork in Chinatown, the Barrio Chino in Havana. And I kind of looked at the history of uh, Chinese uh, diaspora in Cuba and in Havana in particular, which is really interesting. And then my second um, is the biggest one, sphere. right after Lima in Latin America. Yeah, I think in the whole of cat, yeah, at least in the whole of the Caribbean, is was the biggest population of Chinese migrants was Cuba. At some point, it, the Chinese population in Cuba was, you know, I think in the sixties was about three percent of the whole Cuban population. So and it it came by waves too. It has changed a lot. It's definitely changed a lot. And and since the revolution, it's definitely decreased because I think a lot of people left um, in the years before or shortly after, like with the Marielli. Like they went back to they went essentially to Florida and to to the U.S. to the rest of the U.S. Canada, yeah. But no, so the Cuban immigration to uh, Chinese immigration to like the Caribbean and Latin America is really, really interesting. I mean, there are several waves. So the first most important, of course, uh, it was in like the 18th century. Um, it started, but even in the 16th century, there was some, there was some uh, Chinese populations um, that were already in Latin America. I think the first, ever was and this is intimately tied to to colonial rule of course and like european uh colonial expansion and um the transatlantic slave trade and and the just 
the the trading routes that were developed um, among colonial powers. So, like, I think the first boat load of Chinese people to the Caribbean was to Trinidad. It was like 192 uh, Chinese workers that were brought to stay there under contract. They were working under contract and they could they could leave like after one year of fulfilling the contract. And after three years, there were like 20 people left, you know, it was kind of in sugar plantations. Yeah. And yeah, to Trinidad at that time. But the sugar plantations really happened later on. Um, this was more to Cuba because Cuba was the number one producer of, you know, with the sugar plantations. So they really needed a lot of uh, um, labor. They needed a lot of manpower. There was already at that time the Manila to Acapulco line circuit. China, Manila, Acapulco, they were bringing a lot of Chinese laborers to the whole of the Caribbean. And they would stop in Cuba and, and, um, and offload the, a lot of these migrants there to start, you know, working under contract. So what was your findings um, from studying about Barrio Chino in Havana? Well, you know, what was very interesting about this historical migration was that they were mostly men. So a lot of them came and they, a lot of them left as well. And some of them did stay. Um, and then you had like more recent waves that came as well, like in the 20th century, because, yeah, of political reasons in China too. They, so a lot of people came and, but they were not, of course, uh, in the same, you know, status. They were not like under, like contract laborers. They were, you know, free. They came freely. They were artisans or like trades people. So, but they were mostly men. And so how are they going to transmit, you know, Chinese cultural traditions and customs, um, given that there was no family reunification. Like in some other countries, there was more of that, but in Cuba, there really wasn't so much of that. You know, there was like maybe one out of, I think I read like one out of 60 people were was uh, a Chinese woman. So a lot of people just intermar like married, yeah, Cuban women. And um, so in the census, you know, they are then... Um, known as metis, like mestizos. So, yeah, mestizos. so like, yeah, it's very hard to get like proper census information as well. But yeah, I mean, there are different ways in which, you know, the cultural traditions are still present. And when you walk around, you know, the Zanghai area in, in La Habana, which area? is Zangha, it's like the road. So it used to be outside of uh, La Habana, but it's now like really, in, in, like, because the city has grown so much, it's part of like the centro. Um, and it's a very small area. And in the 90s, they, the government started to kind of revitalize. So they had this whole, you know, <laughs> revitalización del barrio chino. So they were like, okay, this is a touristy, touristic, um, of touristic interest. And they tried to, you know, rec uh, just beautify it and like create certain um, structures and institutions. So, yeah. So like nowadays, I think they have like a Hardin Pekin, <laughs> like Beijing Garden. They they have like a whole 
like circuit where you can like with the, all the different Chinese restaurants and, and boutiques where you can buy um, Chinese food and food products. They have like a pharmacy. Um, they have an art gallery now with like some uh, artists of Chinese ascendance, Cuban artists. And, you know, of course, there's the really famous one, Wilfredo Lam, who's amazing. <laughs> so I'm like a big fan of his work. Um, so he's a Cuban artist of Chinese ascent, Chinese descent. <laughs> in Spanish, it's the opposite. The ascendencia, China, right? But in English, it's Chinese descent. Um, so, yeah, you know, there's also a lot of, uh, you know, associations too. There's, uh, when I went there, there was, um, Kuang Wapo, which is a Chinese, um, newspaper. I'm hoping it's still there. And, uh, there's like, a, um, association, uh, called the Casino. Let me get this right. Afederacion Casino Chunghua. So they do a lot. They're very active. They're very active in the community, in mobilizing the community. And they were, um, they were very active as well in trying to uh, regain, reclaim a Chinese cemetery um, in Havana too. So there was like a whole controversy about the use of the land over Chinese ancestral cemetery. That Wait, was there's used. a separate. There's a separate cemetery. So it's not. So now I'm not sure what's going on, but I know that they were struggling. Um, to gain control of the land and because there was going to be construction over it and it's an ancestral land and it's a ceremony that it's a um, cemetery. So the land was a cemetery, but it's not currently a cemetery, but they're trying to gain access and control of that ancestral space. Yeah. So there's like a lot of these negotiations happening and it's it's very interesting. And of course, you know, another thing that's really interesting, I wish I could study, have studied that, but I did not, is, you know, the whole Taiwan-China thing <laughs> and how that affects diasporic, diasporic Chinese communities mm. too. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. yeah. There's definitely a lot to be studied. And another thing that I wish I studied more, but I only discovered it just like before I left was, there's a lot of syncretism too amongst uh, Chinese, like Taoist Buddhist religions and more like religions from the Yoruba tradition. Mm, Yoruba so tradition. there's like syn yeah, syncretism you, amongst that. Yeah, too. You studied religions in when you were in Cuba as well, right? Yeah, so I studied, um, so it was an anthropology class. It was about Afro-Cuban religions or in Spanish religions, the ascendencia africana. So from, of origin, African origins. Yeah. So I studied that under an amazing, like the best anthropology professor, um, Profet Obaina, um, Jaramillo. And he unfortunately passed away a few years ago, but he was really, it was a wonderful course. And, and he being a Babalao himself, like a priest mm -hmm. himself, mm -hmm. he was, had access to, just so many different um, rituals and initiation uh, processes and like sacrifices and just a lot of things that we wouldn't ever have been able to to view. Yeah. 
and to gain access to. So was that was from that from those studies where you found out that there's a lot of uh, similarities or what was the word that you used between Taoism and Yoruba religions? No, it's not that there were similarities. It's just that uh, there is a lot of syncretism between Chinese religions, Taoism, Buddhism, as practiced in Cuba with these uh, Yoruban origin religions, religions of Yoruban and West African origin. But this is something that, like I said, I just saw a glimpse of and I didn't get to study that, but I think it would be really interesting to <laughs> to go back and and study yeah. that because um, yeah. you know syncretism is so was was also something very interesting that happened between Roman Catholic religion and the religions from the Yoruba traditions brought by the African slaves from West oh. Africa, because during colonial times the Spanish outlawed any kind of religion that was not Roman Catholic. So what the slaves managed to do was to find, to pretend. It was in a way like to try and maintain their own traditions and culture. Through, uh, it's like voodoo in Haiti, right? I'm not, I'm not sure, but it was, it was basically to try and create equivalencies between the different uh, Orishas, the different divinities, and the different uh, saints in the Roman Catholic Pantheon. So, because, uh, you know, Santeria Regla de Ocha, um, is, as it's called, is like polytheistic. So they created these equivalencies whereby you would think that they are praying to the Virgen Maria or, you know, whatever saint, right? And actually they were praying to their own Orisha. So that's what happened like mm -hmm. during slavery as a way to maintain their, their culture because it was mm -hmm. forbidden otherwise. So, and then, so now in contemporary Santeria, there's like, you know, these, the syncretic, um, manifestations still occur, you know, so yeah, it's really, really interesting. <laughs> If anyone like who listens to this is interested in in religions, Afro-Cuban religions, like I would really um, encourage them to look at the work of my profe, who is called Rafael Rubaina Jaramillo. Rafael Rubaina Jaramillo, and he's done amazing work about the subject. Yeah, mm, I will definitely check him out. So, and then what, what made you study film? Ah, yes. Okay. So there was several aspects to that. One was I needed a visa to stay. <laughs> so I was like, okay, the easiest Always. ways for me to like get a student visa. So mm -hmm. the first thing that I did was actually I got, um, I got a letter from another, it's called a Senaki, which is like where you can just inscribe like a register for a class. So I got a letter saying I'm registered for the class. Mm. And, um, and then I went to get my visa, mm. uh, at that time I was in Singapore and I got back, but then I didn't attend the class, didn't pay, you know, the tuition. <laughs> so that was like the first, <laughs> my friend told me to do that. Okay. This is like, this is very carioca. All right. It's the word like malandro, you know, like ma malandraging, which is like, you know, kind of going about like, how do you say just avoiding the rules, like flouting the rules, like things like that. Um, so you kind of learn that as a way of life in Rio. 
And so then, then after that, I was like, okay, that's just a one-year visa. Let me study something else. So then I was like, oh, okay, I actually want to learn filmmaking. So because the initial, the, my first experience filmmaking had been really self-taught, super DIY. It was actually when I was in Indonesia, in Aceh, uh, mm-hmm. working, volunteering after the tsunami. Yeah, one year after the tsunami, I just picked up a camera and started shooting stuff and uh, made a documentary there, super DIY, together with a friend of mine who was also an anthropologist at the time. So we just shot this film, and it was um, it was about a village of called Layun, which is in Aceh Besar. So it's like south of Banda Aceh, and it was completely destroyed. I mean, really, really seriously damaged uh, by the tsunami. The whole coastal lit like uh coastal area was transformed like it was not the same anymore um and so we just um made a documentary about about that and i don't know if i should tell tell you more about that now but it's a really interesting and tragic situation because there was i think an ngo i think it was world vision had come in and built all the how rebuilt all the houses for the survivors but they had not bought the land. And so you're supposed mm. to buy the land first in order to build the houses. So there was like right. a whole standstill whereby right. people were still living in tents, unable to move into these freshly built, you know, nice mm. houses Mm-mm. because, yeah. you know, they, they, they were not allowed to because because World Vision, I think at the time, I got to check this and <laughs> not say anything wrong, mm. um, was hadn't paid for the land. So there mm. was... You know, so I interviewed the uh, survivors. I interviewed people from BRR, you know, the Badan Rehabilitasi dan Reconstruksi, which is the agency that was coordinating all the aid, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was, um, so that was my first DIY uh, film. It's called The Second Tsunami. Mm. And that refers to the fact that the aid itself was like a second tsunami to Aceh. Right. Because, yeah. yeah, and this was something that people, Achenese, were talking about, you know, just like, oh, they know it as the second tsunami. So, yeah. Anyway, so that was like my first film, uh, and it's on YouTube. You can check it out. <laughs> it's like at the time I uploaded it when YouTube had the 10 minute limits. So it's like three or four chunks of 10 minutes, I think. Yeah. Oh, and I love so, that. That's very yeah. DIY. Uh, yes. Has, you know, what What do you call it? Um, DIY spirit. Yeah, it was. And then at the time, too, I also didn't want to put um, subtitles. So some of the people were speaking in English, but with mixture of Indonesian uh, sentence construction. But I, mm-hmm. because they speak in English, I was like, I do not want to put subtitles, right? Mm-hmm. But now, you know, when you watch documentaries and the English is not, Maybe like there's a strong accent, you know. But, people but will you still know put the subtitle. Steven Spielberg made West Side Story, and he's like, "Oh, I'm not gonna subtitle this." And now I'm just like, "Okay, let's all of us who who make things not in English, let's just not subtitle anything." You know, if Steven Spielberg is not gonna subtitle it, then technically we should all we should all have been able to get away with not subtitling stuff yeah it's like there's there's so much pressure to well um, you know make make the you know the western world understand yeah that's true that's true but i do think that i mean i made this so that people you know around the world can see what's happening so i would 
um, in retrospect have probably put <laughs> subtitles, but, um, I don't know. Maybe, you know, I think that you can understand, especially if you have some, you know, knowledge of Bahasa Indonesia. I think were that, you looking for something in particular when you went to Aceh or did you just go there sort of on a whim as well on impulse mm-hmm. and uh you know because and then you shot No, uh, no not at all. I mean I that was the tsunami so that's why I went because I was horrified to volunteer. I, yeah, so I went to volunteer at this um local organization that I found through my um, high school in Singapore that they already had that link. So I was, um, I volunteered at Forum Bangun Aceh, their local NGO. They were started by survivors and it was amazing. And they still, they still are active today. They do a lot of great work. So yeah, they're called FBA, Forum Bangun Aceh. And mm-hmm. yeah, I was volunteering there. I just contacted them. I was like, I want to help out. And like, so they just, you know, they were some of them were living in the office so they had an extra room I just lived in the office and um helped out however I could like mostly for um, uh, communication in English yeah right. so we collected a lot of survivor stories um they were doing microcredit at that time and what was really great about their work was because there's a lot of issues with microcredit sometimes if you don't do proper monitoring evaluation you don't really know the community but they were from the communities they knew exactly who had the business before the tsunami what business they they were doing they knew who to give the money to they so they just sought out people and they were like okay like you know they went to uh x village and were like okay so you had um a repair like car repair store like let me give you some money to start that again like and so that's how it worked slowly bit by bit and yeah. they really did amazing work yeah they rebuilt a lot of schools too. Mm. So Julia, did you go there right away in December? No, because I was still I was still studying. I was still at Tufts University, so I went there after uh, the summer. Yeah, yeah. I heard that microcredit can be like a like a big problem in in countries like Indonesia. Um, so when Barack Obama's mother was. To, I should change the story. So I had a mentor um, tell me that, you know, many years ago, he was mentoring someone who had came from the States and she was really furious because she saw a lot of these women. um, Basically, they didn't really have uh, formal jobs. What they did was wait for tourists to get off the bus and they would... um, make money from carrying the bags or carrying the suitcases of these people who, you know, were traveling. Um, And she wanted to put together this like micro credit loan program for them to start proper businesses and have a sustainable business. And then, you know, what my mentor said was that all of these things, like you can give it to the women, but when it comes to actually signing the formal paperwork with the banks, it will be the guys who do it. Like it will be the husband. So it doesn't, it doesn't just, it's not as simple as like, um, it's just, there's, there's a lot of cultural layers to that. And, um, a lot of international, you know, international people who try to, do aid work um miss that 
um, at the start. Anyway, it's yes, just and that's why anthropology that comes in. Yeah, because yeah. you need to understand and you need to do studies that like are much longer than the the humanitarian aid timeframes, which are, you know, a lot of aid workers, they kind of come in for a few months, especially in the humanitarian phase before development, which is like a longer term process. It's very quick because you have to go to the next humanitarian job posting, you know, so sometimes you don't really have an understanding of um yeah, how sustainable it is that what you're doing. But at the same time, you know, sometimes in humanitarian, the, the needs are just like get water to people, like get shelter to people. Like, so you also have those extremely urgent concerns um, mm. and no time to think of more sustainable situations. Yeah. But the problem, you know, and, and I went and I returned to Aceh and I did some research about the relocation uh, constructions that were happening um, and it was just crazy some places were you know uh, there were entire villages that were built so far away from any city center like in the very far outskirts of Banda Aceh like this brand new city full of rows of identical houses totally empty um, and no one wanted to live there because it's so far from their job. I mean, so there's no understanding even of, of like, you know, the basic way that people live in a place. It's very, very mind blowing sometimes. Or you have, you know, you have houses that are built without any kitchen. I mean, th there's like things like that that are really crazy. Or you have, you know, for example, no understanding of how to integrate, you know, women in the discussions about what you, what people need. And, and it was only until, you know, some people maybe realized that, well, because you can't just call them to a town hall at like the middle of the right. day, right. Uh, to come and go there where like men will go there as well. You have to go to them, talk yes. to them in the kitchen, in their home, and then get their feedback. So there was all these insights that, you know, you have to, kind of get in order to do more effective work yeah and I have to say it's also not just international people that miss that point because um, I also heard stories about city people like upper middle class city people who go to who have these who go to these women and have um, dialogue with these women but they um, also miss you know they also miss certain things for example, some women living in more rural areas, um, they don't know terminology like what is like domestic violence. They don't they don't understand what constitutes as domestic violence. But then if you ask them, hey, like, has he ever slapped you before or like, you know, force you to do things you don't want? Then they say, "Oh, yeah, that happens a lot," but they they can't recognize the these like city terminology. So there's a lot to, yeah. Um, but I I had a question about. So it seems that from your anthropology work, um, you presented a lot of these anthropological observations and findings um, using film, and I wonder if that's kind of sort of, I feel like I've seen that pattern in a lot of anthropologists who end up making documentaries. And I wonder if that's, 
in a way, kind of like a rite of passage for a lot of anthropologists who end up um, sharing their work through the medium of film. I don't know. I can't speak for other anthropologists. <laughs> for I mean, I think that documentary work generally has a lot to do with anthropology. So even people who don't come from the field of anthropology and end up doing documentary work, um, at least the kinds that I'm interested in, not just like talking heads, but really observational. And that comes through a lot of, you know, uh, building a rapport and relationship with whatever community or subject you're discussing and portraying, I think is kind of have anthropological approaches, you know? Um, but yeah, for me, I think documentary has been a really important way to communicate, um, to communicate, you know, about something local to maybe a global audience. Yeah. So the second tsunami, it, it was shown in, uh, ethnographic film festivals, for example. And uh, my other documentary works that I did more collaboratively, like the ones that I did um, about the Mojo da Providencia mm-hmm, in yeah. Rio, which is the first favela mm-hmm. um, in Rio. And where for the um, Copa do Mundo, they had the, they built La Teleferico, which is like a cable car. So that displaced a lot of people. So we made a documentary. It was, it was a collaborative documentary that we made and that, you know, ended up traveling to a lot of places around the world as well. So I think it's a really effective way to, you know, raise awareness about issues beyond a specific locality. Yeah. But it's also a good way. And that ties back to some of the work that I did in Brazil. It's a good way for people uh, to tell their own stories. And I think I'm really interested in that as well. And, you know, that's a whole other aspect of my work as an educator. You know, I want to help people to tell their own stories with that medium because it's really empowering. Um, I found it really empowering and I think that other people can enjoy it too, you know. So when I was in Rio, I had the chance to work with UFI, which is the Universidade Federal Fluminense. They hired me to help with some workshops that they were organizing together with indigenous uh, Guarani Kayoa people in Mato Grosso state. And so they basically ran these workshops in collaboration with a Bolivian filmmaker and 12 different uh, indigenous communities that would cross even from Paraguay. They would walk to come and attend, you know, it was. Yeah, it was several weeks and yeah, so they basically were making their own stories, you know, and yeah, it was, it was very empowering, I think, hopefully. <laughs> yeah. So speaking of Rio, you said that, uh, Rio remi- reminded you of Singapore. Um, Singapore then, I feel, because Singapore now has changed so much that it, it feels, I feel like when I visit Singapore in the last five years or even ten years, it 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 doesn't ha- it it just feels not the Singapore that I grew up in anymore. Um, and since you are actually based in Singapore, I wonder if you had any um, 
any insight on that and this push to sort of be like a like a popular you know like a, the popular one in in the world <laughs> i don't know i think it's like too general for me to say there's like so many different things happening in singapore right now i don't think i can sum it up as like mm-hmm. one trend you know Mm. But I can talk about the art scene. I mean, the art scene, because that's what I do research on when I'm back in Singapore, the art scene is developing significantly. Like from when I was growing up in the 80s in Singapore, there was really not so many artists. And now there are actually a lot of young emerging artists. So that's a good thing, I think. And people are organizing in ways outside of institutions there's the you know they're trying to collectivize in interesting ways i think and they're not waiting to be you know picked for like exhibitions they're creating their own uh, modes of exhibition so and platforms to exhibit even digitally and in in real spaces of course the pandemic has made the real spaces more um like lesser but digitally i think it's happening as well so I think that's an interesting trend. Mm, yeah. Well, <laughs> my experience of Singapore so far has been uh, like me walking around by myself trying to find anything like art exhibitions. Uh, because every time I go there, especially with my friends, like 10 out of 10, their goal was to go shopping you should so come visit I? me i'm going back in january oh maybe i will oh that's fine yeah because you can now come without like uh, i think there's a vtl with indonesia you can come without quarantine yeah mm. i mean i'm not sure now with omicron that might have been mm, like, yeah. you know, thrown out the window but for some time they had the the vtl that was gonna start up but definitely if you come to singapore let me know we should hang out <laughs> yeah absolutely Oh, wow. We talked about so many fascinating things. <laughs> yes. So um, uh, so normally we uh, ask two closing questions. Um, one is, what are misconceptions about Singapore that you feel need to be dismantled? And two... What is your favorite Singaporean food? And then that might be a tangent on its own because what is Singaporean food? It's such a mishmash of, you know, Malay, Chinese, Indian, Javanese food all mixed together. Yeah. And that was why it was really difficult to write the articles about Singaporean food. <laughs> Malaysian food, for example, it was like really hard. On coconuts, like, right? For coconuts, yeah, I was like, which, like, <laughs> these are dishes that are eaten in both places and in, like a lot of them in Indonesia too. So, yeah, how do we <laughs> differentiate. But yeah. Um, yeah, I remember, I forgot what year was this, but right. I, I remember I read an, uh, like a news headlines that says that Indonesia and Malaysia were fighting, and Singapore were fighting over Chendol. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, you know. But it's ridiculous. so ridiculous. Like, we can just all have the, all like have our claim to it. It's fine. <laughs> but. But yeah, you know, people, of course, will be very, very pissed off because, you know, Singapore 
maybe we'll put all their branding to it and then oh sort i of remember like, it, was nasi lem- <laughs> it was not, not, not nasi lemak no no nasi goreng right that um singapore sort of like claim and indos were so furious about it this was like i don't know like four or five years ago <laughs> it was yeah there are always dishes that are like one country claims and then people get really upset in the region <laughs> yeah. just like food wars yeah <laughs> but i think like the balance of power or like the economic like disparity really adds um you know petroleum yeah. to the fire because it, it's you know makes people feel like hey just because you able to brand it um and put a lot of money behind all the advertising like, it doesn't mean that you originated it yeah but you know i think all these all the different countries have their own spin to things and i think it it would be best to focus on that rather than focusing on like the origin like mm-hmm. the authentic yeah. source cuz i don't think there yeah. is such a thing <laughs> yeah 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 so but do I don't... you do you have a favorite singaporean food well my personal oh. favorite singaporean dish is carrot a cake lot. Oh, carrot cake. How is carrot cake Singaporean? Yeah, it is. Yeah, (laughs) it is. Oh, is it the dim sum? Is it the dim sum carrot cake? I don't know. I was thinking like I was thinking like American. I was I was thinking American carrot cake. No, no carrots and carrot cake. That one is dessert. (laughs) This one is delicious. It's There's funny. like the yeah. white carrot cake and the black carrot cake too, <laughs> depending yeah. on if you want the sauce Wait, or not. The yeah. white or black yeah. carrot cake? Yeah. yeah. Oh, you don't have the, that in the... Indonesia? No. No, I don't think we have. Wait, so why do they call it carrot cake if they don't have any carrots in it? Well, that's a really good question. <laughs> we should research that. I'm actually we curious. I want to look at it. I want to find out. <laughs> I think... I remember I asked the lady in the hawker food, like, why it's called uh, carrot cake. And I think she showed me a picture of, I forgot what the vegetable is, but it looks like carrot. But white. It's a kind of radish. Yes, radish. Yeah. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, it's yeah. called carrot cake because of a loose English from Hokkien translation of radish pastry. Ah. Oh yeah, well it's chai tau kue. Carrot or radish cake. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> it all comes from the fact that chai tau is can be have two meanings, <gasps> carrot or radish. Unfortunately, they chose the wrong <laughs> meaning of the word. <laughs> they chose the wrong one. <laughs> It's funny when Ruth said carrot cake. The first thing that I thought of was like the one you get, you know, in Martha's with Bakery, like cream cheese. <laughs> it's making me hungry. I'm just looking at the dishes. Too. So, Julia, do you have a favorite one, or is do do you not have a favorite one? No, I definitely do. I I eat a lot of food when I'm back. Um, I like I like uh, mipok. Meepok. Like meepok. It's like noodles with a meatball and then some um, ground pork. It's so yummy. There's a movie, Meepok Man. (laughs) 
can check it out. That the best will make you want to eat meatball. That I found in New York is at Walk Walk, the underground restaurant. Oh, which I think you you I, I think you included Walk Walk right in your article. Yeah, I love. Can I just say I really appreciate. Um, the shade you threw, I don't know if we can say this, the shade you threw at Wayan because it's not Indonesian. <laughs> it's not. Yeah, it's I didn't not. include it. Did I include it? I don't think yeah, so. You no, no. You, you mentioned... Beginning. You oh, just I mentioned, mentioned Rigoy, that's right. Yeah. That mm-hmm. it's not real Indo food. And it's true. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the chef is French. And um, mm-hmm. so it's like a fusion food, fusion yeah. cuisine, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, it's like not French, Mostly not French. Indonesian, yeah. not. Yeah, anything. I went there and I tried their gado gado, and their gado gado is so small <laughs> with avocado. <laughs> the, but I do like it though. I do enjoy the yeah. gado gado. <laughs> Thank God, it's good. Yeah. I know it's yeah, it's pretty expensive restaurant. Oh yeah. Oh my God, especially for like Indonesian restaurant standard, you know. Yeah. I remember my friends. They ordered this. Um, prawn crackers with sambal and it costs like oh my god i don't know like ten dollars for three crackers <sighs> yeah there's like so many amazing indonesian restaurants that shut like just at mm-hmm. elmhurst my favorite upijaya yeah, yeah i love closed. i will go to eat their rendang yeah. you know so often they're I mean, the one that closed it's so sad yeah they closed um and you know they've been open since like 2002 or something like yeah just it's funny because when when i first came to new york um upi jaya was the you know the number one indonesian restaurant and then i uh spent you know a year and a half in indo and when i came back here to new york the new number one indo restaurant is awang now and i was like wait what like it's it was it was just kind of trippy because I've never heard of Awang until I came back here and people were like oh you know it's it's the the thing now you know people don't people go to Awang more than Upijaya and then anyway yeah yeah it was a lost Upijaya I don't know it was the only Padang food as well um, and they were so famous for their rendang but hopefully. Ibu Upi will open something later. Cause you know, she'd been doing it for uh, like before Seamless and Delivery and Food Panda and all that. Like she had been doing the original like OG delivery, you know? Yeah. Before she even opened the physical space. But mm. anyway, at least Awang is still there. There's, um, Sky Cafe. Sky Cafe has yeah. really good noodles. Mi Complete. Yeah. I really like their yeah. food. Oh. And Bali Kitchen in, has closed as well. I don't know if you've tried that. Yeah. yeah. In Manhattan. So sad. Yeah. yeah. Maybe it will open again. Yeah. It was really interesting to interview all these people behind the restaurants too. Like their stories are incredible. You know, um, Chef Jazz Passe from Bali Kitchen. Like he came here. He's a queer Indonesian man. Opened a restaurant. In the heart of Manhattan, like serving up Indonesian food to like a non-Asian and then Asian audience. Like it was just he was doing, you know, this cu- cultural bridging we were talking about before. Um, he was he was doing that, like expanding people's ideas of, of food um, and yeah, pioneering Southeast Asian food in Manhattan. 
but so it's very sad. I always, I always have, you know, a lot of respect for people who who do that because something that I've found, especially from doing sugar nutmeg, is that people on this side of the globe in this area um, are so unfamiliar with Southeast Asia. And like they know, you know, Korea, Japan, China, um, but then Southeast Asia is still like way too foreign for them. Or like they know Latin America, but Southeast, yeah, like Southeast Asia is just a region that's so foreign. And like the the complexity and the the multitude of, you know, ethnicities and religions is something that cannot be easily understood by them. Um and it's also like not a you know like a settler colony. So because of that, it's like for a lot of people, it's it's just really hard to like relate or understand Southeast Asia. And yeah, yeah, and that's exactly why like through food, food is an easy way. Food is community. Food brings people together. Like you don't need to know so much about you know a culture, but you'll be able to appreciate the food, and then through that, you'll learn more about the culture, and slowly, bit by bit, your mind will expand and become more curious about you know a place so i feel i really think that through food you know all the people who are opening restaurants who are immigrants to this country who have you know come with like great hopes and dreams to make a better life here in america and who have you know worked you know really really hard to open a restaurant as it's really hard work um they're just they're doing such important work in terms of um cultural bridging, you know, bringing, exposing people to different cultures. Um, yeah. And not to mention they're, you know, bringing communities together too. Like, you know, they're a place to gather uh, for the local community, for the communities from their countries, just like Warung Salasa. Um, you know, they yeah. go, they, they're a grocery too, grocery oh store. Oh my God. So people today go there is, all the time. Yeah. Today is Warung Kamis and they have Bindam oh, yeah. and I just saw it on their Instagram and I'm like, oh my God, should I go there right after this interview? <laughs> yeah. It looks so good. <laughs> oh my God. But, yeah. but, but I yeah, feel like, really amazing. I feel like a lot of, uh, young hipster people today, especially in America, they were like, oh my God, I eat tempeh. I love tempeh. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> but they don't even know where tempeh comes from, you know? That's so true. Yeah. Well, tempeh is one of the most delicious ways of eating <laughs> eating soybeans. Yeah. But then again, they're so expensive. Like when I go to Union Square Farmer's Market, there's all of these like really bougie tempeh that costs like 80, 80 bucks for <laughs> a, like a tiny block of tempeh. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> No, that's, that's ridiculous. It's like one million rupiah for a tiny bowl of tempeh. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Julia, do you like martabak? The Indonesian martabak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I love it. So there's a good, really good martabak in Philly. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, because because like when you say Indonesian martabak, um, you mean there's a because the Singaporean martaba is Mar- like with eggs and like it's oh, filled. Martabak telor. I think like yeah. in Indo we also have it, but we, we call, call it martabak yeah. telor. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's the same. Well, speaking of Singaporean food, uh, I know that you're going to Singapore in January, but do, are you working on a new project or are you working on a, a new short films, collaborations or 
in general, what is your plan for 2022? Uh, basically, just moving my whole life to Singapore right now. And then, um, you know, I have my work in Singapore where I'm a research associate at the university researching contemporary art in Singapore. So that's going to continue. We're currently writing a book um, on contemporary art in Singapore. And that book is going to come out next year. That and then also I'm working on some personal projects which are like comics. So I'm very into comics right now. I'm doing like a graphic memoirs. Mm. It's going to be like a mini comic. I don't have like so many uh, stories right now, but it's basically uh, comics about um, my time in Brazil, some of adventures and shenanigans I got up to there, <laughs> and then uh, childhood memories in Singapore as well. So like right now I'm working on a comic about the first job that I had did in a factory of French men's briefs in Singapore when I was like 13 with my friend Nathalie. <laughs> and we, we worked there. French men brief, like men's briefs. Yeah. French company. Like, is it Pierre Cardin? No, it's not Pierre Cardin. <laughs> it's like another brand, <laughs> but yeah. And so that's what I'm working on now. And I have another story that I'm working on about my time in Brazil where I'm searching for frog meat. Frog um, meat? Because when you go to Rio, you see a lot of ads for carne girin. <laughs> carne girin. And it's like frog meat everywhere. Call this number. And then you're like asking, you know, I'm asking all my Brazilian friends like, what? Carne girin? Like, you eat this? And... You know, in my head, I'm like, yeah, like frog porridge, yummy. You know, we have, we eat that in Singapore and I'm like drooling. I'm like, when can I get myself some carnage, huh? And they're like, oh, like, no, people don't really eat that. You know, like it might be code for something. Uh, <laughs> wait, so, so what is it? Yeah, what is it? It's not uh, frog legs. You <laughs> have to wait for my comic to discover. <laughs> so it's not frog legs. <laughs> Maybe it is. Maybe it's not. You're going to read my comic. Oh, my God. Is it sex? Like, I don't know. <laughs> so, like, some people... Yeah, well, so it's a bit of a mystery. It's a bit of a mystery. But, um, you know, people didn't often know as well, which is another thing in itself. Like, the actual cariocas didn't know whether it was actual meat or whether it was, you know, code for having an abortion or, you know drugs or what so that's also part of the lore of that mm, story interesting interesting oh, wow i can't yeah. wait <gasps> <laughs> it's not like marvel is gonna pick this up <laughs> <laughs> hey who knows right yeah maybe, maybe Ooh, marvel, someone <laughs> may someone might listen to our podcast <laughs> yes <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, Juliet has a lot of interests, and I mean it's I obvious. Been, <laughs> and she does, and she pursues all of them. And mm -hmm. I've actually been reading, and she's good at it. And so I've yeah. I've been reading about people who are called, I believe they're called multipotentiate or multipotentialite. Mm -hmm. Um, which are people who are good at doing many different things. And one of them is Brian May. 
um, who is the guitarist in Queen, the band, Mm -hmm. because he is like an actual physicist, um, not not like a hobbyist who who learns and reads about physics, but he's um, an actual practicing, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Is, which is like, I don't know, like, how do you do that? But yeah, I guess there are some people who are gifted that way. Um, and I feel like, I feel like Juliet, it's uh, like metaphorically, is Singapore. You know what I mean? Like, it's a mix of a little bit of everything in a way, don't you think? Like from Southeast Asia. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. Like a mix of, yeah, compared to, I guess, like compared to other Southeast Asian countries, there's a more prominent mix. Yeah. But I was going to say, like, like nowadays people make it a taboo almost, or they make it as if it's a bad thing if you have many different interests, right? Mm. It's like you, people say like, you have to specialize in one thing or you have to focus on one thing. And then if you have... Is that a taboo thing or is it just on. like, you know, because. No, because they call you labile, right? Like what is right. labile in English? Uh, indecisive. Yeah. Like you can't make up your mind. Right. And people think that, you know, you're. I think whatever, that's the like nature of human. Like whatever. we want certainty. Like we, we want something that is certain and maybe the society kind of reflect that. And. I don't know, push it towards you. Like, I feel more, what do you more, want? more and more now. Right. Yeah. Well, I feel like more and more now, because if you look at in the past, um, I feel like in the past, like writers um, were also like, there's a lot of mixing between um, intertwining between writing and painting and poetry and music and performance and it isn't um and then today i feel like it's a little more like oh if if you're in music then you should just focus on that if you're in um, i feel the opposite because really mm-hmm. like if you compare it to i don't know like aristotle or who who's like like back in the day someone who like paints and writes and i mean also, if you, i mean charlie chaplin Right, but like you mentioned Aristotle's, but the philosophers there, they don't call themselves, you know, it's my job to be a philosopher or whatever. No, I was just like, I watched this uh, documentary on HBO. It's a okay documentary. But the interesting part that the, the, the producer mentioned is that before kids in school, when they ask what they want to be when they grow up, you, you get answers like pilots, dentists teachers or blah 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 now kids answer like they want to become an influencer and what is an influencer i mean it's kind of like mix of everything right with like tiktokers you kind of like dance and sing so it's kind of like <laughs> i don't know okay so but i feel I the feel opposite like from that real, perspective right mm. i know i know i'm using the maybe i'm not being politically correct or whatever but if you talk to real dancers and real actors they wouldn't say tiktokers are is like actual dancing and acting right but they get paid you know? more uh-huh i know <laughs> that's so unfair god damn <sighs> well 
Well, if you are TikTokers out there, please listen to our podcast and maybe promote our podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if you you are actually someone who is genuinely interested in life and the intricacies of life and culture and society and history, um, check out Juliet's work. She has mm-hmm. a lot she's written a lot of um different articles on coconuts and wanderlust and many others. And also go to mommy if you live in New York. Go on a Valentine date and watch the dialogue with the unseen. <laughs> <laughs>